Breakthrough News. It's 5 p.m. You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is the Punch Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we're back with you here on Tuesday, March 9th, 2021 on the Punch Out from Breakthrough News. Happy to be back with you and we got plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about voting rights in danger in many places around the country. We're also going to be talking about the scam. That is energy deregulation. That's if the Texas situation didn't already show that one to you. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we're going to start with the big food industry lobbyists who are, well, trying to kill you. Well, we've reported to you several times on this show that A, meatpacking plants are sites of major super spreader events, and that B, the meatpacking industry almost certainly is lobbying the USDA to make sure there aren't any regulations, or at least not that series of regulations, to address that issue. Well, now, due to a Freedom of Information Act request by the watchdog group Public Citizen, we now have a much clearer picture of exactly how far these industries are willing to go to place profits over people. As Public Citizen states about their findings, quote, we knew that meatpacking companies did not take adequate measures to protect their workers and the communities they lived in from the threat of COVID-19. These documents show that the industry actively pushed back against the few steps the Trump administration took to try to ensure the safety of meatpacking workers and federal inspectors. In April of 2020, when the pandemic was sweeping the nation, an official at the North American Meat Institute, wrote to the USDA about the inspection process. Now, this North American Meat Institute official was upset that an inspector who had been exposed with COVID had not been sent to inspect a particular plant. Yes, that's right. He wanted somebody with potential exposure to COVID to be sent into the plants that he was representing. Saying specifically, quote, we can't start sidelining individuals at FSIS or in the industry because they may have been exposed. We all may have been exposed at this point. We can't start sidelining. We can't start sidelining. It doesn't just say FSIS. Those are the people who are the inspectors. But in the industry, we all may have been exposed at this point. That's what he said in April of 2020. Clearly, he was worried about the lack of inspectors holding up the production process, or maybe he was hoping that someone who'd been potentially exposed would be less likely to look closely at things to avoid catching it or whatever it may be. But either way, yes, even if you've been exposed to COVID, they wanted to make sure you were in the plant working and inspecting. That's the North American Meat Institute. Also in April of 2020, as Public Citizen relates, quote, officials at the National Chicken Council complained to the USDA that FSIS, again, those are the inspectors, were asking too many questions about COVID-19 testing at poultry processing facilities, stating that, quote, the questions seem to be unnecessary. Asking too many questions. I thought that's what they're supposed to do. They are indeed the inspectors. 
In May 2020, officials at Tyson, big time chicken company and other forms of meatpacking too, complained to the USDA that the company had to, quote, spend significant resources each day when reporting positive team members, end quote. Yes, I mean, God forbid you have to use any resources to track who in your plants has COVID-19. In late March of 2020, so a little bit before this, the Food and Beverage Issue Alliance now, if you're like me, I, I had never heard of that before. Uh, the Food and Beverage Issues Alliance is an umbrella group for various food-related groups like say, the National Restaurant Association, the number one enemy of the minimum wage increasing, but also groups that you certainly have never heard of, I certainly have never heard of, like the National Association for Dressings and Sauces. So yes, breweries, restaurants, meatpacking plants, they're all under this Food and Beverage Issue Alliance. Now, I say all that. Because in late March of 2020, as I mentioned, the Food and Beverage Issue Alliance developed guidance for industry members. Now, again, this is, this is all sorts of people, all anything involving food and beverage. They developed guidance for industry members stating that unless state or local governments required it, quote, physical distancing should be a tool, but not a requirement, end quote. Public Citizen also notes that industry officials reported FSIS employees who warned their friends and families about plants with cases of COVID-19, specifically forwarding a personal Facebook post and asking USDA to take disciplinary action against the inspectors. Wow. So inspectors go to a plant, they see it's unsafe, they warn people that they know in the area that it's unsafe, and the companies narc on them to the USDA and demand that they be disciplined for trying to outline a public health disaster. Now, this, of course, dovetails with previous documents released by Public Citizen that revealed things like Smithfield Foods repeatedly requested that the USDA, quote-unquote, order it to reopen its meat processing plant in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, despite there being no legal basis for such an order. Meatpacking plants asked the USDA to intervene on multiple occasions when state and local governments either shut them down over health and safety concerns or sought to impose worker health and safety standards. And the North American Meat Institute, yes, they're back again, repeatedly requested that the USDA Secretary Sonny Perdue discourage workers who were afraid to return to work from staying home. Hmm. So there you have it. Despite a global pandemic, the majority of lobbyists in the food and beverage industry were going out of their way to try to lessen, not increase, protections for workers, inspectors, and ultimately, you. Deregulated energy, which became all the rage in the early 2000s. Remember Enron? In many states around the country, it was supposed to be a panacea for consumers with the robust competition between utility companies leading to lower prices. Well, a new report in the Wall Street Journal of all places today throws cold water on that, noting that in the states where deregulation was implemented, the average bill went up, not down. The journal lays out that, quote, U.S. consumers who signed up with retail energy companies that emerged from deregulation paid $19.2 billion more than they would have if they'd stuck with the incumbent utilities from 2010 through 2019. Almost $20 billion more dollars spent in energy bills for the people in these states after deregulation than they should have had to spend or they would have had to spend had they not deregulated the market. The journal analysis looks at 13 states and the District of Columbia, which should be a state, by the way, 
and also noted about this issue, quote, consumers on retail plans paid $1.9 billion extra in Pennsylvania and $1.7 billion extra in New York during the 10-year period examined by uh, the Wall Street Journal. In 2019, consumers paid $3.1 billion more in D.C. and the 13 states put together. So just one year there, 2019, $3.1 billion more than people should have been paying in D.C. and those 13 states. In Texas, get ready for this. You may not be surprised, but in Texas, residential consumers who signed up with the retailers paid $12.6 billion more in the 10 years through 2019. So overall there, just to remind you, $19.2 billion more paid towards electricity companies in the deregulated markets than they would have paid had they not deregulated the market. So why is this happening? Well, the journal lays out, quote, watchdog groups, state attorneys general's offices, and state consumer advocates have complained about the retail power industry sales practices for years, saying some use low teaser rates to attract consumers who don't understand that rates could go up eventually or just illegally switch people to their service without consent. Big retail companies such as NRG Energy, NRG Energy Incorporated, concede that there has been bad behavior. End quote. The journal goes on to note that, quote, some retailers have targeted the elderly as well as poor and often heavily minority neighborhoods where electricity bills account for larger shares of income. They asked, uh, Someone about this, the journal asked someone about this, an expert who noted that, quote, low-income consumers are much more receptive to the message, hey, you can save some money here. There's also the fact that rules that encourage retail firms' ability to market their services to low-income communities give customers in those neighborhoods the ability to take advantage of the cost savings they promise, but then ultimately that's not the case. So there's actually rules that encourage the firms to sell this energy under you know false pretenses to people who they're hoping are not going to be able to understand what's happening and who are desperate because of the low-wage reality of this country, who are desperate to save money somehow. I mean, it's just outright predatory. Deregulated energy is predatory. That's why it is so high. They are preying on people, they are tricking them, and they are essentially just stealing their money. I don't know how else to put it. When you spent $19.2 billion more from 2010 to 2019 than you would have spent if you didn't deregulate energy. So if Enron, the California blackouts in 2003, and what you just saw a couple weeks ago in Texas, Mississippi, and other states aren't enough proof for you, here it is, or here it was, in black and white, so to speak, leaving critical services to the private market clearly just does not work. Georgia lawmakers are steadily advancing measures designed to restrict voting, especially for black people and poorer people. After a massive turnout flipped the state from Republican to Democrat as it concerns the president, uh, excuse me, the White House and the Senate. The bill in question here at State Bill 241, as summarized by The Guardian, would, quote, in the right to vote by mail without having to provide an excuse. And under the bill, only people age 65 or older or who have one of a handful of state-approved excuses would be allowed to vote by mail, end quote. The legislation also would require voters to provide identification information, such as a driver's license number, both when they apply to vote by mail and when they return the ballot. 
Now, the bill now goes from the state Senate to the, the lower house of the state legislature in Georgia. They themselves just sent a bill to the state Senate, which also restricted voting. They were restricting where you could put drop boxes for absentee ballots and mail-in ballots, and they also put further restrictions on early voting. So sometime soon, it seems a package of voter restriction laws will go to the Republican governor of Georgia to sign. Now, Republicans, of course, claim that this is all about preventing voter fraud. But after the extensive campaign by the Republican Party last fall, alleging that there is huge voter fraud in Georgia, even the Republican election officials in the state said that there is essentially zero voter fraud. They did several recounts. So clearly, that is not the real issue, voter fraud. It's pretty easy to see what the real issue actually is. The easier you make it to vote, the more populations who have disproportionately more non-voters do, in fact, vote. Now, those people tend to be disproportionately Black, Latino, younger, and low-income, i.e. populations that tend to vote for Republicans at significantly lesser rates. So clearly, the restrictions are designed to make the electorate whiter and more wealthy, demographics that more heavily favor Republicans. It's a blunt instrument to reduce the influence of voters who may demand the government do more to help people, really. And, you know, what's even wilder about this is when you look at the election results nationwide, but also in Georgia, the white suburban voters are primarily white suburban voters. In Georgia, some of these all-black suburbs that are a little more affluent also voted heavily for Biden. But it was really the suburban surge that swung it for Biden. Now, it's a little different in Georgia because there was a big surge of all types. But when you look at the country writ large, the suburban surge was key. So when you look at these types of bills, it's ultimately a sign that Republicans aren't really worried about those suburban voters. They feel like there's a chance that they could potentially win them back. They don't have to suppress their votes. They just want to make sure that the other parts of the population who voted against them are kept down in perpetuity, it seems. So really, any way you cut it, when you look at it, it's a sign that both major parties are now predicating their electoral strategies on winning middle and upper class white people outside of major metropolitan areas. And then they just want to graft on various elements of the working class based on whatever appeals they're making. Obviously, Republicans are making appeals to racism, among other things, and Democrats are making appeals to the fact that they're against all that and that they're going to help oppress populations. But at the core... Middle and upper class white voters outside of major metropolitan areas. That's the key for both major parties. That's clear here. There are 33 states pushing similar laws as Georgia. 165 bills in total. That's more than four times the number of voter restriction bills that had been introduced by February in 2020. These numbers come from just a bit ago in February. So that means February 2020, there were four times fewer voter restriction bills in front of states than there are right now. So a huge run-up at the end of last year. Most of these 165 bills come from after the election to February. So 33 states in the same situation as Georgia. Clearly, losing the White House and the Senate has alarmed Republicans who, rather than, I don't know, change some of their positions to try to appeal to more people, are just trying to keep the people who don't like them away from the ballot box. Quite a democracy we got here in the U.S. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. 
And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom.